0: Welcome to the November episode of OMP Clinical Care Insiders, an original podcast series produced by the American Academy of Orthotists and Prosthetists. I'm Seth O'Brien, Vice President of Prosthetics at Wheeler OMP and chair of the Academy's Scientific Societies Committee. Today, I'm excited to welcome Steve Lindsley, Certified Prosthetist, fellow of the Academy's appointed liaison to the VA, and member of the Academy's Lower Limb Orthotic Society. Steve is a graduate of Northwestern's Prosthetic and Orthotic Program, He's a retired veteran with 28 years of military experience and owner of Premier Hope Orthotic and Prosthetic Enterprise in Shreveport, Louisiana. In honor of Veteran's Awareness Month, we could think of no one more fitting to serve as our guest today. Steve, it's great to see you, and thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Seth, it's an honor to be here. First and foremost, obviously with November being Veteran's Awareness Month, wanna thank you so much for your service. And really tying into that, I understand omp kind of found you while serving as an mp could you share a little bit about your journey in providing care in iraq sure i was deployed to iraq in 03
1: and i was a captain in the 112th military police battalion while there i met sergeant chris cummings who was a civil affairs nco we had come across a lot of folks who needed limbs I had only recently received my certification notice from ABC, and so we ended up, we started out with two patients. We arranged for some components to be donated, and then my wife arranged for shipping through FedEx, and they didn't even chart for it, and that was the first of many shipments. I don't know if they realize what they are getting into, but we started with those two, treated them in the basement of Saddam's Suhey Palace. And I made lakes, and it was just an amazing experience.
0: Before starting your military service, were you introduced to OMP before that whole journey, or was it during your time in the military? So in
1: 1991, I graduated from Mississippi College, and my degree was in sociology. I had joined the military in 88 strictly the for college in terms be being real while involved. I decided if I was going to do it, I needed to do it to my best. So I accepted an appointment to the officer candidate school and 15 months later, there was 133 of us that started and there was, I think 32 that finished. And I was a graduate, became a commissioned officer. And so I branched MP, and then. I was assigned to my first unit and just did that. I actually was deployed to, with Operation Joint Endeavor, the Bosnia-Somalia conflict is my first deployment. And when I came back, my wife and I had a son that was playing t-ball and his coach was the person who introduced me to the field because I was taking night classes, preparing for therapy and I was doing my master's, I was teaching during the day. And coming back from that one, which is a whole nother interesting rabbit trail. Yeah, <laughs> sure. A, I bet. As a detachment commander in Iraq, I thought that everyone was to obey what I said. And
0: those third graders, they
1: didn't agree
0: with me. <laughs> Much respect for teachers. Oh man, that's right. Okay, so get introduced to this new path. And then I want to circle back to something that you just glossed over like it was nothing. So you mentioned that you had a clinic started to see patients in Iraq in Saddam's palace. Did I hear you right? Correct. We were assigned there and we had the responsibility
1: for the security of the Iraqi provisional government. We're actually working with the Navy SEALs at the time. And that was a neat mission, but I was a logistics officer. So I had somewhat of a nine to five type job, not quite nine to five. You're always alert, but I had responsibilities to take care of during the day. And then after hours, all of us had a little bit extra time. We all worked out, did that stuff. But Chris was already in country and he had seen the need. And so he actually knew I was coming and he sought me out. And he is a strong technician and owned a central fab company. And he did not have a lot of clinical experience, but. His skills are immense now. He's got great clinical skills in addition to his technical skills. We just partnered up and went from there. It was uh, just an amazing experience. By the time we, by the time I had left, we had treated 92, made 92
0: limbs. Wow. Primarily Iraqi and Iranians, believe it or not. You essentially have a day job, day responsibilities as you were describing. So were you seeing patients and helping in this clinic setting like after hours on the weekends? Yes. You normally were to work seven days. They may arrange a shift
1: where you had a day off here and there, but we wanted to be busy. But they started changing my schedule as we had such a demand for patient care. They would line up outside of the Suhaik Palace gate, trying to come in to see if we could help them. And it grew like crazy. So yeah, I would usually go over around five o'clock in the evening, work five or six hours. And then occasionally on weekends, they would send me up to another area of Iraq, particularly where those Iranians were that Saddam had allowed to stay there with a pledge that they would respond to Iran if they attacked Iraq.
0: They would respond with Iraq on the side of Iraq. Wow. So then to help in this kind of clinic setting, right, and and you're accomplishing patient care, how do you find all of the hands and bodies and manpower that's needed? Were you using other volunteers from within the the military or were you training locals or how did that, how did you get the support needed to make that possible?
1: That was pretty amazing. We had one of the young ladies who's a chaplain's assistant. Got so excited about having something positive to do there in country. Our S two, which is our intel officer, uh, his name is Rob, and he's a terrific guy. He's also a civilian law enforcement. He's a sergeant now, and or at least a sergeant. Anyway, he he loved what we were doing as well, and that's what I was so impressed with is the people and a lot of the folks that we met, as far as the engagement and the overall assault. I don't know that everything was pure on the motives from above, but I do know that the folks I met with really cared for the people there and a lot of positive relationships were established and it was an incredible thing to share
0: goodwill with those folks and they needed it. Sure. Was there any interest from the local Iraqis to be involved in that or to learn some of the skills associated with OMP? Yes, absolutely. We had several through the, it was
1: actually through the army. They were non-trained technicians. They came and got their training with Chris and I, and actually there was five of them that were initially assigned and before it was done, well, when I left, they were all five still there. And Chris went back about, I think it was 18 months later as a civilian contractor and help continue with the clinic there. And he said that he stayed in touch with them. And two of those technicians went back to school for their master's in O&P. And i am amazed to report that out of the prosthetic clinics in Iraq, that is the top clinic right now for patient care. And Chris is with Biosculptor. So he had made arrangements or we did through the department of state for a donation of a system to be used at our clinic. And then eventually there was another system donated for their Ministry of Health. The Ministry of Health is bureaucratic. That one's not being used very well. But the one that those five technicians that Chris primarily trained, I helped, but he took the lead. They're
0: still at it and they're providing, I think it's the best clinic in
1: the Iraq area.
0: Wow, that's incredible. What, you mentioned your wife helping to the logistics and coordinating with fedex and and things like that but how did you I'm imagining this clinic in the palace how did you get the equipment and some of the tools that were needed? I, I imagine there was probably a lot of improvising what do you use to heat plastics or to laminate things like that? yes Saddam so was in our prison at camp proper and of course we
1: didn't have to ask his permission but we used the pizza oven that was in the basement of the Saha palace it was yes and Nice new pizza and we use that to heat plastics and a lot of the procurement, I was the fiscal ordinance officer or foo. so I had access to funds and was able to work with local contractors for procurement. And so we purchased, uh, we ended up using the po- old polyester resin and again, whatever plastics we could get. And we may do, we used a, a large shell from a mortar round. As a basis for riveting, we did old school systems that were effective, but they were not the top of the line that we have to have here. Again, the components were donated. A lot of times it was used components that would not be able to be used here, but those folks were just pink to have them
0: because they were functional and it allowed them to walk and run. Man, that's incredible. I think there's something to the oven there. So Saddam's pizza oven and and I actually used to use a Cinnabon oven, a convection oven we got from Cinnabon. They were getting rid of it and and I'm sure moving offices or locations or something. But I think there's something to those specialty food ovens that's like the secret to (laughs) O&P. What about some of the people that maybe we're involved in the conflict and some of the locals. I think you and I have talked a little bit, and I think we had some mutual experiences in providing care to those who were helping the efforts over there. And ironically for us, both some experience with interpreters. Can you tell me a little bit about, about Homeboy? Oh, yes. Homeboy is still in,
1: I believe he's in Maryland somewhere now, but he was assigned as an interpreter to the special forces unit at the time airborne. And he got very close with the guys. Of course, interpreters are not allowed to be a part of the conflict there to interpret, but a couple of the guys got caught in an ambush and Old Boy couldn't see him out there continuing to be under fire. They were they had already
0: been shot. Just to reset, so Homeboy is is Iraqi, correct? Jordanian, but much of his family is from the Baghdad area. So local, not somebody who's brought in from the military, but somebody locally in the area there, right? Correct. Yes. Yeah, definitely local. And,
1: there, when Homeboy drug his two friends that were our service members out from under fire, Homeboy was shot twice as he did it. Once in the thigh and once in the lower leg. The one with the lower leg was bad enough to cause a ablomniation. And, of course, we were asked if we could help him. And after we did, he became our interpreter. And I've met some amazing guys here that were in that unit, and they became an advocate for homeboy to help him to get out of country. Unfortunately, his family was ambushed. And because he was serving as an interpreter, many of them were killed. His wife survived. His father is still there. It was really sad and he needed a way out. So these guys that served with him remembered what he did for them. And they were firm advocates, strong advocates in getting through all the red tape, like one of them was an attorney, is an attorney. And so yeah, on boy is now here. He has uh, at least two kids at last count and he is just one of the most patriotic Americans that I know now.
0: I, I was going to say, I, I can think of a couple of people who are very similar stories that I've been fortunate enough to be a part of their care. And man, the enthusiasm and the excitement that they have for life every day is just amazing and inspiring. Ruth, yes. I'm really curious on your path to transitioning from all of those incredible experiences and stories and fast forward to now and you are a business owner and operating in, in private practice, which is got to be a very different daily routine for you compared to all the stories we just heard, but tell me a little bit about what inspired you to become a business owner and open your own practice. Coming back from Iraq,
1: I had been allowed while there to see patients in a variety of environments. There was mortars going off one time. I saw them in kitchens. I saw them in bathrooms out in courtyards where there was, they would get me a bucket of water. So I could take a cast. I learned that I could take care of patients in some challenging situations. Sure. And there were some constraints with the company when I came back where I was employed. They're good people, but they did not like the idea of traveling to patients' homes. And I don't like it for the the bulk of the care, but my wife and I talked and we said, we can do better than this. And so- I will go to a patient to take a cast, and then I'll even do an initial fitting and work out something to help them to get into the office to complete the care. Of course, the goal is always complete independence, and we expect them to come to the office at every visit that they can. But we felt like that was a change that we could make to improve quality of care.
0: I bet that that you also looked at everybody here thinking they're using these weird, pointless things like rivet bars instead of the right tools like mortars. Yeah, we are privileged here, with our equipment. (laughs) (laughs) What about continuing education? I know in our discussions in the past, that you certainly put a premium on that, that continuing education part. Can you tell me what kind of role that's played in your practice and in your career in general? Sure. We are very committed to improving the field.
1: My training was certificate level. It was not even a complete master's. And to be honest, when I got through the class, if you asked Mark Edwards, Mark would tell you that they counseled me and said, Hey, I'm not sure you're going to make it in this field. And it was amazing to be able to complete all of my exams to be one of the first half of the class to complete it, despite the fact that I was preparing to deploy. And the whole time I was in school, I was a military police commander in the reserve. So I was going back and forth. There was a lot of obstacles but i understood how important it is to do the best for your patients if you don't learn you're not going to do the best for your patients i have two sons in the field and one other young man who we love that's an amazing employee and they have all been trained with the way the schools are now so their training was primarily a lot of it was took place with therapists so the collaboration And the, the network sharing for the better of the patients is incredible and I love it. So I'm learning from them. I did go back during all the COVID mess and was frustrated because my patient care was being limited. So I went on and did my fellowship stuff and completed it during that time. Obviously I'm driven. And anyway, we do a lot of lecturing with the LSU system for the physician residents. And within the ULM system, University of Louisiana, Monroe, for the therapy students. And we just love to initiate that. So we make sure to do all we can to help with promoting quality patient care.
0: What are some of the most valuable aspects of that involvement with other disciplines that you think you might have, whether it be physical therapy or the physicians or physician's assistants? I think that's such a key role that often people don't get exposed to, but I'm curious from your point of view, being involved in those things, what are some of the things that in that education or in those discussions that you're finding the other side is really picking up on or really eye-opening for them maybe a little bit? For us, it's all about the patients
1: and if love is at the root and you're truly following that, hey, first do no harm, let's take care of our patients, then the interactions that the therapists provide to us help me to understand so much about how to design my alignment and socket fit to make the most comfort and the best efficiency in ambulation. And then, uh, of course, for the physicians, they've, they've invited us in for surgery. So and we'll go and we'll talk about what's the ideal limbly. Uh, I was fortunate enough to have some time with Francis uh, as a mentor and Dr. Wu as a mentor. And so we've worked with the herbal procedure, we worked with some of the other systems that are out there, that the latency method, things that are used in third world countries, but it's all about, hey, what can we do to collaborate to make the best possible patient care?
0: How about technology? Has technology played a specific role maybe in your, we could talk about the extreme ends of the earth here with the mortar rivet bar example, but do you find yourself, Intrigued by any technology or any specific techniques as you go forward and and continue to develop as a clinician? Sure. I'm 56. I am, it's not not as
1: easy for me, but I'm very fortunate. Both of my sons are very adept at the high tech stuff. And then uh, Raul came from a biomed background. He actually designed something to detect cancer in mobile apps. It's just incredible what they can do. So, with those two, we've been working with 3D printers and CAD, and uh, I'm learning. It's it's slow for me, but I am learning, and I'm open to learning. And uh, I believe that as long as your foundations are solid on your patient care for your hands-on care, then the high-tech care can only enhance your practice. But if you're depending on that solely and you don't understand the hands-on care, there's probably going to be some things that will not be in your patient's best
0: interest that will develop, and you won't know how to resolve. Yeah, I would echo that. Absolutely. You mentioned that collaboration aspect and the network of people that are important. One of the things that I always really find valuable, obviously, I spend a lot of time working with the scientific societies, and I just continue to find that community is so important to have people who are passionate about the same kind of areas of practice. As an example, the the academy having the nine scientific societies and soon to be 10, where people can really collaborate and learn and mentor and be mentored. Where have you found some of those opportunities to be the best throughout your career? I I know you're a member of a society or a liaison to the VA, a lot of roles that you have played over the years with the academy. But maybe specifically to that collaboration and continual learning, any places that you like to go and tap back into those resources and discussions? Obviously, the VA is
1: amazing in their research. I've so enjoyed participating in their discussions on the day before the academy meetings, and I learn a lot from them, and they seem to be able to put a focus on that with their residents.
0: Steve, maybe the last question that I have for you is as we often grow and as we place an emphasis, as you do, on continual learning, we may change our minds over the years. What's something that you've changed your mind on over the years within ONP? Initially, I found the idea of CAD
1: and the 3D printing, I was suspicious about it. I just didn't see how it could be effective. And I. Had a lot of problems with it, but I'm learning. Thankfully, I have a friend who's really, his facility is primarily cat based His name is Kevin King. He went to school with me. He is amazing in what he does with cat, And so he's taught me a lot, and he is committed to help me as we progress further into that area as an aspect of our practice. But that's the primary thing. I think a lot of the, the digital stuff,
0: if I could get my hands on it, I wasn't confident that it would be correct. Coming from that old school approach, I I share that thought more than I realize over the years, I think I was absolutely very much a hands-on perfect it with that skill set is the only way to go. And I have very much realized that a different medium and using the technology to our advantage is a very powerful tool. And and I'm excited to, to continue down that same sort of learning path. Yes, sir. I believe you're a little further along, Seth, than I am, but we, we
1: <laughs> keep those patients as our goals. That's All right. right.
0: It, it's a never ending, right? It's just a big mirage in the desert. We keep going down and thinking we're closer, but it never really materializes, I don't think.
1: <laughs> I'm glad to see you in front of me. I'll just follow along. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Steve, it's really been amazing talking to you. And, and once again, first and foremost, thank you so much for your service and everything that you've done for the OMP field as well. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to be with us and really appreciate it. Thank you. Been an honor and a joy to to serve and to be a part of this field. And I wanna thank all of you for listening to this episode of OMP Clinical Care Insiders. I hope you'll join us each month as we continue our conversation with key voices in the OMP community, discussing their areas of clinical care and sharing personal experiences as professionals in that specialty. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And don't forget to check out the Academy's other podcasts for OMP professionals the award winning OMP Research Insights with Dr. Steve Gard, and OMP Rising, a podcast created for emerging professionals in our field. For more information on the American Academy of Orthotists and Prosthetists, visit us online at onp.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time.